everyone. Welcome to Scotty on the Horn. This is a podcast where I invite experts from a variety of fields and discuss topics that interest me. Today's guest is my good friend, Dr. Ava Pila. Dr. Pila started her academic journey at McMaster where she earned her bachelor's of science. She then moved on to pursue a master's degree at McGill University and the University of Toronto and finished her PhD at the University of Toronto. Dr. Pila is an assistant professor at the University of Western Ontario or Western. She works within the School of Kinesiology. Dr. Pila's research interests involve body image and mental health, emotions and motivation related to physical activity, self-compassion and compassion-based interventions, and she's very interested in studying the conditions that disproportionately impact women's health. So this might include weight stigma, eating disorders, and breast cancer. On today's episode, Dr. Pila and I talk about body image, how it might impact both men and women, experiences in sports, how those might shape the way in which you understand your body and how it moves throughout the world. It was a good conversation, learned a lot. So thank you and hope you enjoy. All right. So I guess we'll start off. Maybe I'll just get you to describe you know, what you're interested in as a researcher. Yeah, uh, sure. So broadly, I'm really interested in the psychology of body image. So um, mostly in terms of how that fits with uh, within a mental health framework. So the ways that we feel and perceive our bodies and how that impacts the way that we feel about ourselves uh, more generally, the way that we relate to the world. And obviously, you know, in being in kinesiology, also how the way that we perceive and feel about our bodies is related to the way that we choose to move them. So movement behaviors more generally. And so when I say movement behaviors, that can capture anything from sport to 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 just, you know, embodied movement practices that aren't really intentional or don't really have a specific like performative skill to them. So so really broadly, yeah, the, the area of body image. And so that can capture things like negative aspects of what we typically think of. So body image disturbance, which is where most of the research seems to be. And then also all the way to the positive side of things. So ways in which we can appreciate the way that our body moves, its function, how we are embodied. So the ways in which we relate to the world around us, that as well is captured all within my sort of framework of body image as it contributes to mental health. So when you talk about non-performative, are you just talking about how, you know, we hold ourselves and interact in the environment? Like, would I go swimming or would I, you know, is, is that what you mean by that? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And just like in the ways that our bodies basically move us throughout the world mm-hmm. and it doesn't have to be in an intentional act, like how we mm-hmm. think of it from a kinesiology perspective of where we intend to, to move our bodies in a certain way for you know, performative functions, like for to, to enhance a certain yeah. skill, or we practice a drill to, to enhance a skill, it can also just be the ways in which our bodies like represent our identity, or who we are, or, you know, if your body looks a certain way, you might identify um, as an athlete, for example, or so, so it has sort of this identity and, and sociocultural implication mm-hmm. as well. Awesome. All right. So what I like to do is I, I generally like to bring people back to the beginning and talk about how experiences in sports and experiences in school may have shaped, you know, your path and how you got here. So let's start with 
sport. Did did you play sport? <laughs> what was your path? <laughs> yeah, so so I'm laughing because when you first were telling me about this podcast and you were telling me about how you you know usually ask your guests about um, their sport history and uh, you know I, I think the the ones that I've listened to so far have all been you know really high performance athletes. Phenomenal. <laughs> me um and so my i'm probably very much a, an anomaly in the sports uh, psychology world and and certainly even within kinesiology more broadly but i have no skilled sport background uh whatsoever so uh, a lot of this is because i grew up in albania so albania is a country in um, Eastern Europe. It is developing. And my parents immigrated here when I was nine as a result of civil war that was happening in the country that we lived in. So that I think feeds into a lot of my lack of sport background. Um, there was, you know, certain gender norms around girls participating in organized sport. And there was also major issues in terms of access and like ability to engage in sport recreationally. There wasn't really like a sporting organizations at a recreational level. They just didn't exist. So, you know, sport for me and the way that I grew up was basically just seeing the neighborhood kids tossing a ball around, um, you know, in, in, in an open like a dirt patch essentially (laughs) (laughs) i've had like near pro athletes and now i have the dirt patch player (laughs) 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 exactly 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 and so (laughs) and so that really i mean when i moved here i was nine and so you know um i moved here without really knowing how to speak english and so being thrown in in grade four into like a physical education class was fairly traumatizing given that I had never even heard of uh, hockey for example or like a lot of different sports that um, you know in Albania it's pretty sort of typical uh, soccer or what they call football is essentially like the one and only sport and so aside from that I really wasn't familiar with with uh, with the sport or athletic um, culture in a lot of ways so that I think and um, just experiences of integrating as a, an immigrant uh, integrating in the you know physical cultural space in uh, middle school was I think would definitely shape the things sort of things that I studied today the way that I feel about sport and you know, and, and obviously when I talked about body image, I study self-consciousness. So, <laughs> so yeah. how that impacts the ways in which we choose to move. And mm-hmm. so, so yeah, that I think about sums it up. Um, I, you know, since once I was in high school, I engaged in a lot more sort of physical activity related things, but never competitively. Like, you know, I was on the track and field team and all like very recreational. Um, my, you know, pretty much my only athletic claim to fame was that I I won an MVP award for orienteering. So I don't know if that's a sport you're familiar with, but um, it's essentially using using maps to orient yourself in different um, different things, and you run and like get little like tags in different open areas. And you know, and it's funny because I can't even really read maps, but I had a it's a partner endeavor, and so my partner was phenomenal at map reading, and I would just sort of run around and and get the little uh, the little tags, and you know, as you can imagine, it's a very under 
represented the sport and so there was only very few participants and uh-huh. as a result we won a couple like provincial awards you know when the when the n is small the um you can you can you can go a lot further <laughs> how does uh how does one get into orienteering uh, <laughs> you know what I, could, I couldn't tell you i think <laughs> i i stopped when i was at the top you know got the mvp award yeah, at yeah. athletic banquet and yeah. i decided decided to retire at that point so, always, yeah um, walked away because you <laughs> wanted to not because you had to right? <laughs> so, yeah something like that yeah. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> all right so now you're the orienteering champion you're graduating high school you got all this confidence you uh <laughs> decide to pursue higher education what's your what's your path yeah good question well somehow I ended up in kinesiology and it was actually really funny because I even um just to show you how little promise I had in any athletic endeavor as a as a child actually when I so I was in McMaster um for kinesiology and I was there because it was a you know like super science heavy driven program I was really interested in physiology and you know I wanted to pursue medicine the typical sort of high achieving immigrant immigrant kid and anyway I pursued kinesiology and as we know lots of athletes or really highly skilled individuals are um, are in kinesiology programs lots of varsity athletes and so I think those programs tend to gain a reputation so I was working at the time my part-time job at Tim Hortons and I was at the um I was at the drive-through and I was met by my I think grade four or five gym teacher who um, recognized me and we had a really nice little catch-up conversation and he asked he's like oh like what is it that you're doing these days and I was like oh I'm actually in kinesiology and I think I just saw his face just absolutely <laughs> drop at you know who these kinesiology programs are actually accepting yeah. so <laughs> yeah so um so you know typical sort of med school hopeful and uh, that dream died pretty much as soon as I started undergrad and you know I failed my first biology 101 uh, midterm and I was just around these super brilliant people and it just uh, you know just sort of realized that's not uh, what I wanted it's not like the competitive environment that I that that I really thrived in or wanted to, to be in so and I was also actually really interested in psychology that was always a big interest of mine and when I wanted to pursue medicine it was to go into uh, more psychiatry or more you know I was really interested in the brain and how the brain functions and how people behave so you know a few courses in I discovered health psychology and that really like changed my path in terms of what I wanted to do because it showed me okay like there's these two areas that you're really interested in and there's this field or the sub-discipline that actually merges them and that's when I sort of um, started discovering the research of Kathleen Martin Guinness who was basically my first introduction to 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 this area and I started doing some work with her as a an undergrad thesis student and that's that sort of got things rolling and that's the path that I've been on but it was really I think yeah like pretty early on that that I that I found that 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 path that merged both like the study of health and, and, and psychology as well. You probably weren't aware of how much of a springboard into research Kathy Martin Guinness is at that point. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Just like exactly. A, a big hitter in our field. So, yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I had a good introduction and then she actually was yeah. the one who recommended just given my interest, I was working on a body image project with her 
And she was the one that recommended that I, uh, when I was, you know, sort of pursuing research further, she recommended my master's and then PhD supervisor as someone to go work with, just given my interest to stay in that area. So, so yeah, you're right. That totally, like, I think forged the path and gave me an intro into what the research world is like. <laughs> yeah. So you finished, you did your undergrad uh, thesis, you applied, you got into McGill with Kathy Saviston, right? So we actually did some time together. Did, did we finish together or did you left halfway? No, I think you were a year ahead of me, oh, right? I think uh, you were a year ahead of me. Yeah. And so we overlapped for one year and yeah. that was it. So, and I guess at the time, Kathy and Gord had some connection, obviously being mm-hmm. this, oh, the only people at, at McGill mm-hmm. in Canada at the time. And so there's some overlap. And I think we were in the same classes or, or mm-hmm. something and our labs were just... <laughs> a few doors down. I mean, you were definitely a different Scotty back then, but, but, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, we did, we did overlap just that one year, I think. Um, and then, uh, and then I left to go to University of Toronto to uh, continue working with Kathy when she ended up um, uh, pursuing a position there. And then I basically stayed in Toronto until, um, until moving to London where I am now. So you had a bit of an interesting experience where your supervisor as a master's student got to change schools, right? So she, she worked for Miguel, then got a offer at the University of Toronto and switched over. Did mm-hmm. you, I, don't, I actually don't know and haven't asked you about that transition, but what, what's that like as a student? Yeah, that's a really good question, actually. And I think that it's probably something that a lot of students do end up having to face with academics, often ones in really research intensive roles that are moving around to yeah. to explore d- different opportunities. So yeah, as, you know, and I was a first year master's student. And I think, you know, I found out that she was moving four months in or five months into yeah. my time there. And so, you know, I really knew that I wanted to work with her. I'd gone to McGill to work with her. And so it wasn't really, I don't think a question of whether I would stay or whether I would go. So I think the only, yes, yeah, so I followed her to UFT. The only thing really holding me back was just that I loved Montreal. Yes. I loved living there. It was such a yeah. fun city. It was a great place to, you know, to be in your early twenties. And the other thing too, was that I had grown up in Hamilton. So when my parents moved or when my family moved to Hamilton, um, you know, obviously there was a lot of like um, economic constraints too. And so I ended up staying at at McMaster and going to, going to, to the, you know, living at home basically. So I didn't really have like the traditional university undergraduate experience. So I was really wanting to go away for grad school. (laughs) And so I tried to go to Montreal and I tried to, you know, get a little bit further yeah. away and then I think really the only disappointing aspect was the fact that I had to move back yeah. <laughs> to um, to the you know greater Toronto area um, so to speak and so but really it ended up working out really well um, mm-hmm. I ended up loving Toronto and staying there for a while too and there's obviously lots of great opportunity at UFT and and I actually moved with my um, with a few people in my lab at the time which also really really helped the transition because we were yeah. all going through the same thing together and you know um, several of those of those individuals I'm still super close with and really good friends with so that that definitely can help ease the transition but I think a lot of students have to obviously the consideration of you know is it the institution that I'm here for is it the supervisor 
what am I going to get if I leave? What am I going to get if I stay? You know, certainly considering some things around what will happen if you're moving and some and you're with someone who's just figuring out their way in the, their own their new institution as well. So there's going to be obviously a slowdown in things like productivity and whatever. But that really wasn't uh, on my radar as a first year master's student, as yeah. you can imagine. So. <laughs> So did you, do you have a, is your master's degree from McGill or is it from U of T? Mm-mm. It's from U of T. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So McGill's kind of like erased from my, um, yeah. from my CV in a lot of ways. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> well, U of T is pretty good too. So. Yeah, yeah. 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 I still, you know, McGill holds like such a, a lovely place in my, in my heart. Yeah. Still. I, I really had such a good year there. So oh, um, I, I consider you alumni. Y- okay thank you thank you so much (laughs) (laughs) and you were there for were you there for your undergrad as well no so i did my undergrad at concordia so just down the road Oh, okay okay right right okay so So you were just there for the two years yeah so i had there's like the rivalry between them and obviously mcgill's a little bit higher up so when i was in concordia i'd get all this smug comments and what do what do people from Concordia and McGill have in common? They both applied to McGill, right? Oh, uh, okay, okay, right. Yeah. right, right <laughs> so right, then right, I came yeah, to McGill yeah. and I was like kinda hated them, but then I got <laughs> caught up in it and actually really liked it. So. <laughs> yeah. And then you were probably the ones dishing out all the um all the commentary to your Concordia friends. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, for your master's study, what did you actually pursue? What was your project? Yeah, so um, master's study was kind of a continuation of some of the work that Kathleen had introduced me to, which was trying to understand psychophysiological mechanisms of body image threats, essentially. So, you know, and this is really an area that's been very understudied and um, it draws from social psychology literature more broadly. We're really trying to see... um, you know, when we are in an acute experience of threat, so social threat. So in in my case, it was when the body, your evaluation of the body is being threatened, or you feel that your body is being negatively evaluated, what sort of uh, psychophysiological response does that elicit? And then how does that impact any outcomes, you know, down the road? So things like uh, how we decide to drop out of physical activity or disengage from physical activity, or it could even be things like performance outcomes. So there's evidence that women who are objectified form worse at a motor task than men or women who are not objectified. And so there's, there seems to be this physiological link, which is what I was really interested in studying. And so at the time, uh, and still now, Kathy, my uh, supervisor, was doing work in um, self-conscious emotions. So trying to understand these, um, these experiences that are relating to how we feel about the body. And they're very social and valuative in nature. And they tend to have these physiological uh, underpinnings as well, because depending on who you ask, they, they are evolved emotions. So we've evolved to feel this way for for you know um, fundamental reasons for how humans uh, interact and so and so anyway um, and so at the time um, she was really trying to establish this one emotion that hadn't been looked at at all uh, which is envy or this experience of feeling envious of the way other people look or the way that other people's bodies perform for example and so you know from an uh, you know from the perspective of an athlete you can probably uh, think of instances where you've socially compared your body or the performance to other people who are uh, better and or who you perceive to be better than you. I had so I really an example we, of that last last podcast where I said I was trying out for 
hockey. And when I was 16, I was five foot three and I did the jump test. And then the guy behind right. me just didn't even jump, stared me down and slapped higher <laughs> than I jumped. Right, right. And then right. I just went, oh my God, I don't have a chance. And it re- like, I couldn't even stick handle after that. I had no stick right. after. Right, I'm just, right. I'm, I'm just not good enough. Like, and that was, that was just that body comparison. This is a yeah. grown man and I'm still a boy. Right? So. right, right, exactly. And I mean, that's a really good example of how, you know, that devaluation of yourself or of your skill can have this immediate impact on your performance or your um, ability to to act essentially. So we see this obviously in, in, in the body image literature. And so that's essentially what I was really interested in trying to understand. And so, you know, how does our response to social stressors, which is really what these things are, how does that link with them with these self-conscious emotions? So this work can be a little like um, theoretical and conceptual in nature, and it's a lot less applied. So unlike much of the sports psychology work, which I think can, you know, have very clear implications, this is a little bit, it's a little bit more abstract in nature, but I was really interested in that area. And I'm still like, even right now, I'm preparing um, a grant with, with that basic premise in mind. So, so it's something that I'm super interested in. And it's an area that really hasn't been tapped into at all, mostly because it's incredibly difficult to manipulate these experiences in the lab. And so uh, ethically, anyway, so you know, how can we get little Scotties to feel inferior um, about their their performance in in a performance context, and then track their outcomes afterwards, it's very hard to do um, in a lab setting. And you have to do that associated with their body, right? (laughs) <laughs> exactly, exactly. like hey you weak idiot <laughs> like, yeah. right right and i mean they've been doing this in the in social psychology for years and years mm-hmm. of you know these like social identity based rejections or these like uh, evaluative threats there's established protocols in 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 social psychology that yeah. that use these but but it's, it's a lot different in 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 canon in our area i think so I think they do that with uh, like math testing, right? If, if they tell women that women tend to perform worse in math and then give them a math test, right? it'll, it'll lower their scores. Where if right. they tell, like if they were to, and I think the same across race sometimes if they will highlight a certain race that is like stereotyped as being worse and they bring that up before testing them, they can just right. butcher their scores. Right, right. Yeah, like, exactly, like inducing a stereotype threat. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And actually, for my for my master's at McGill, I don't know, actually, if you were, if you helped at all with this, because I was having a lot of the grad students do act as some of the confederates in the study, but I was doing like the, the Trier social stress test where women were coming into the lab and doing a performance task, and they were being evaluated by a, a co-ed panel of judges. So I'd often bring in anyone who was sort of in the lab, just trying to create that, you know, very evaluative environment. But the women would basically have to come in and they would have to do a difficult arithmetic task on the spot. They'd be videotaped. And then we would assess their uh, levels of cortisol, essentially, uh, which is a stress hormone um, that we expect to be elicited as a result of feeling social stress. Yeah. So that would be like a measure of psychophysiological response, right? Exactly. Are exactly, you going to increase yeah, exactly. stress hormones? Are you going to exactly. increase like the sympathetic nervous system response, right? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And so, so is it going to um, cause changes in the body? And then will it also cause longitudinal changes in behavior? 
yeah, so yeah, in behavior and, um, you know, we know that chronic exposure to cortisol, for example, is associated with, with worsened health. And so, so, so definitely, yeah, looking at those, that's sort of the implications anyway, but cortisol is extremely difficult to measure. Um, we measure it using saliva. There's lots of different other ways we can measure it. But anytime you get into the psychophysiology, it just gets a lot more challenging to pin down. But I think that's what's interesting. So, <laughs> okay. Yeah. So I guess the applied perspective would be, hey, does highlighting certain inferior inferiorities of the body create negative responses, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And if we think about it from like a, a performance or sport performance yeah. context, oftentimes in coaching practices, that's something that's used as a way of motivating athletes. So comparing them to someone who may be superior as a way of hoping that they that might induce a change in their behavior. And, you know, when we look at this literature, it certainly doesn't suggest that that would be helpful, or at least it might be helpful in, in the immediate context, but really it'll just lead to deteriorations of how someone evaluates themselves and, and their abilities. So we've done it with aging populations, but not from a psychophysiological perspective, just a motivation perspective. Okay. Yeah. Show, showed examples of some master's athletes. If you know what a master's athlete is yep, yep. A highly competitive, older adult. So 35 mm. plus who's competing at an elite level, right? So we would use, well, I say we, but our field, so I didn't do this study, mm. but people would position master's athletes and see whether or not representing their stories and their images would be motivating for other older individuals to become mm. physically active. And what mm -hmm. they found was that it depended on the older adult. So if it was a fit older adult, it would mm. work very well. But if it was an unfit one, it actually would do the opposite. So you'd be like, look okay. at this inspirational guy. He can, he's 80 years old running uh, marathons. And then it would completely turn the person off. Right, right, right. Yeah, 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 exactly. And I mean, that really is the, like the, the degree to which you relate to the social, the, the social comparative target. You know, if it's something that you think is achievable, mm -hmm. then it might be motivating. If it's so far out of reach, yeah. um, you might either, you know, engage in avoidance coping and dissociate from the goal, that goal being yeah. important to you, yeah. or you might feel a lot worse about yourself. So yeah, so definitely. And I mean, you know, in uh, the culture that I was sort of raised in and, and the Albanian culture is often, um, social comparisons are used as a method of motivating people. Like it's okay. just a sort of like this embedded norm <laughs> in the way that we function. And so uh, I was constantly exposed to, um, to those kinds of cues. And, and so it, it is really interesting to look at them from the empirical perspective. <laughs> yeah. Nice. So then you followed it up, you did a PhD. What was your, uh, what was your topic on for your PhD? Yeah. So um, for my PhD, I guess I switched a little bit and, you know, I was interested in how the body is experienced, essentially how these emotions are experienced in a clinical population. And so my supervisor uh, at the time was doing work in uh, breast cancer mm -hmm. and body image concerns are quite relevant in the context of cancer since their uh, cancer diagnosis is linked with uh, increased weight. So and, and increased body changes as a result of uh, cancer treatment and uh, a, a lot of the, the factors that are that are linked with with the cancer survivorship period. So my PhD work ended up being trying to understand how women felt about their changed weight as a result of, of breast cancer. That's probably the best way I can describe it. And yeah. I actually ended up leaving the physio the cycle side yeah. um, completely and, 
and just really focused on the psychological experiences um, in that case. So what did you end up finding? Any kind of key take homes from that study? Yeah, I mean, probably the key take home um, in, so it was a mixed method study. So I did qualitative work as well as a couple of uh, quantitative studies. So one was an intensive longitudinal study looking at um, how women responded to self-weighing or being exposed to their weight. And then the other was using longitudinal cohort data to examine what was happening um, to the relationship between their body and their their body emotions and their weight throughout the post-cancer period. Mm-hmm. And I think probably the best way to describe the findings is a direct quote from a participant. So, you know, if we're staying close to the data, uh, and, I, and one of the papers actually that came out of that work is, is the title is this and it's that the weight is even worse than the cancer and so these women really described how their experiences with gaining weight and particularly the pervasive stigma around what their bodies look like was really really challenging to deal with and more so challenging than just going through the cancer treatment and the cancer recovery process and Mm -hmm. the reason for that was because you know, in our society, we often tell women that weight is something that they can control, whereas cancer is sort of seen as this thing that happens to you, mm-hmm. whereas the weight is something that you can impact. And so because of the this like very individual responsibility um, type way that we think about weight, the women ended up feeling horrible about themselves because they weren't able to change their weight. And so um, as a result, like the types of messaging that they were getting from their uh, clinicians, from their, their the team's... Uh, I mean, the, um, the, the interdisciplinary teams of clinicians that they were working with around um, how they should change their weight to be able to reduce the risk of cancer recurrence, that was sort of the, the, the really challenging thing yeah. to deal with or the really distressing bit is that they were told that they're responsible for um, reducing the risk of their cancer coming back and they could do that by changing. So really it's just like an um, incredible amount of responsibility to put on, on the individual when we know from the literature, how much, um, how many factors implicate weight gain and how many factors are associated with that. And then that the, you know, links with uh, disease and mortality aren't even that clear, but anyway, um, and the success rate of actually any kind of physical activity intervention is very low. Especially extremely as, low. Extremely low. Relates and, to weight management. Yeah. Right. Exactly. And I mean, the fact that, you know, by women engaging in physical activity, they can gain a million benefits and they can gain so many wonderful things uh, that improve their quality of life, that decrease their psychological distress, that improve their mental health, despite any seeing any changes in weight. And so, you know, why not just promote that, um, that engagement in physical activity to get all those benefits, but instead, you know, societally, we really do um, focus on the weight as the, as the indicator, which obviously is a big issue. And I find it interesting too, there's too much focus on the actual scale, like the actual Mm -hmm. weight, right? So Mm -hmm. if you're non-active and you get involved in physical activity, you probably are going to put on weight first. Right, because right, you're building muscle. Right. <laughs> so anyway, right. I've been working out and I'm putting on weight. Yeah, that's good. Mm-hmm. Right. So, yeah. but it's just bring that number down. Right. So. Yeah, exactly. And I mean that that number is used clinically as an indicator of health all the time. Yeah. And so, uh, obviously, in the sport context, it's huge with um, with weigh-ins and um, there's been some recent 
media uh, and some recent press on this, but around um, using that number on the scale as an indicator. And so, and one of my studies actually showed just that, that women's emotional responses uh, and the way that they felt about themselves throughout the day was actually linearly related with the number on the scale each morning. And so if they, uh, you know, gained a a pound or two, which, you know, could be linked to any number of naturally occurring processes in the human body or a mechanical issue with the scale, (laughs) you know, those sort of things implicated the way that they felt and, um, and just a week worth of seeing their weight every day and being attuned to those changes was, um, you know, making the women feel a lot worse about themselves. So, so yeah, you're totally right that we really place a lot of emphasis um, on that number. So another area of research that I, that I find fascinating that you do is related to pride. So can you break that down for us? Yeah. So, and, you know, and and I know you and I have had a lot of sort of uh, conversations about this, about pride and the hubris. And and so this idea of uh, pride, so pride is just another self-conscious emotion and we consider it to be positively valent. So typically it's a positive emotion makes us feel good about ourselves. And it's the essentially the other side of the other emotions that we were talking about earlier. So, you know, if you compare yourself to somebody and you evaluate yourself as being superior to that individual, you're going to feel proud. So, um, and there's these different kinds of pride. So one side of it is linked to our achievements. And so we feel good because we do good things or we do things that are socially valued. And then the other side of pride is that it's linked to being superior to others. So there's sort of like this, this duality or these two sides, one that we consider to be more socially desirable than the other. Functional. (laughs) Yeah. 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 So what would be the difference? You say hubristic is the one where you're just trying to be better than others or gain uh, positive valence from being marked as superior. Exactly, exactly. And you know, the, the reason why that's problematic is just that it, it tends to be linked to worsened outcomes. So or it tends to be linked to, uh, to narcissism and some other, you know, less than desirable traits and outcomes. And even in terms of it has implications in terms of our ability to achieve goals. So we're less, less likely to pursue dif- difficult goals. Um, than if we feel that it's that our actions that are actually contributing to our uh, positive outcomes, which, you know, is linked to offense pride, which yeah. is this, you know, more, more desired type of or, or, or facet of pride, I guess you could say. Mm-hmm. So I guess in the sports psych literature, it'd be very uh, akin to a task versus an ego orientation. Yep, yep, quite similar. Exactly. Yeah. So one focusing on the self and the other focusing on a specific behavior. Yeah, definitely. And it'd be linked to very similar outcomes as well. But I think with the with the pride literature more broadly, I think one of the important implications or the the criticisms of considering pride to be a good thing is that it's always contingent on the way that we socially evaluate ourselves. And so um, we don't really necessarily consider we don't give value to ourselves just for being humans and the fact that we have inherent value, even if we're not the top performers or even if we're not winning prizes or being recognized with accolades, uh, we still have inherent value. And so pride is this emotion that's linked to doing good in the social eye. Mm -hmm. And so, so I might argue and, and, you know, I'm, several many others before me have argued that um, that pride might be something that um, that can be quite challenging uh, with regards to mental health Mm -hmm. 
if we rely on it as a you know purely uh, positive outcome. Yeah, yeah, I could see that. So I was going to chat with you and uh, get you know the counselor version. I, I'm walking in, I'm chatting with you about my history and and my experience with body image. So I've had a, I guess a complicated <laughs> body image experience myself growing up Mm -hmm. where I think I've had both negative and positive aspects of it. Mm -hmm. So I was going to get your thoughts on this. So can you have, can you have the two? And Mm -hmm. I I guess I'll give you some (laughs) reference here. So growing up, I came from a family that was like stupidly fit. Like my mom's 59 years old and has a visible six pack, like just some good genes. We, we always joke about being Rathwell fat and like whoever's the uh, most overweight in the family at the time, so, which is something that's always been like on your mind, right? So, so growing up with, with a typical body type that would be praised for a guy, mm-hmm. so I, I'm mm-hmm. a more muscular guy, I'm lean, I'm proud of it, I would say. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I walk around and I feel good about my body and the representation that I walk around and how I look, mm-hmm. but I'm never fully satisfied. Like I always mm. know what's wrong with it and what I need to work on next. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. How, how would that be explained? Right. Is that. Yeah. And I think we could honestly sit here and talk about this for hours alone as a topic. And, and you know, um, but I think there's, there's probably two aspects here. One is that, most people have complicated relationships with their bodies that develop and change over time. And so, you know, often our early childhood experiences, you mentioned the family context, the types of messaging we heard about the body and from our social circles growing up really impact the way that we, the relationships we have with our bodies. And so one of the, you know, the things of it's the same, the same sort of conceptualization as when we think of mental health. Uh, so, you know, having mental health is not necessarily the absence of mental illness. So it's, the exact same thing with with um, with body image as well is that we can feel uh, good about uh, our bodies, but that doesn't necessarily mean that we are not concerned about specific things and and, and vice versa. And um, there's lots of different dimensions and uh, domains and facets of body image, depending on who you ask and depending on what theories you look at as well. So you know something like having body pride can exist in the same space as feeling feeling ashamed about um, a certain aspect of your body or a certain a performative aspect, for example, or yeah. functional component. So, and I think that really the, the big picture of what you're capturing and, and the things that you're saying is that, you know, the buy-in into this sociocultural ideal of what the male body should look like. And so you, you know, felt good about your body because it represented the ideal. It represented the idea of what men are supposed to look like. And so, and obviously the targets that you're working with, as you mentioned, are your family. So if the targets are all really high, then then you know those are like the relative comparisons that you might have in in your your space so I think the number one thing is always challenging the sociocultural messaging around what is a good body and you know uh, someone who like for example what might you say to someone who who doesn't fit the sociocultural ideal for what the male body should look like but still feels good about themselves and feels good about their body and what their body can do and that their body represents themselves and, and those sort of things so what might you say in that regard Mm -hmm. So 
you know, I think really like we buy in and we internalize so much of these pressures and um, there's, you know, there's a construct that we measure in this area, which is like the internalization of sociocultural ideals. Yeah. So we internalize it and we believe it to be true. Mm-hmm. But I think always stepping back um, and thinking about, okay, is this actually true or is it just what I've been indoctrinated to, to think? And I might argue it's the latter. (laughs) Yeah. So for sure I went through it and I guess just being, I was, I played a ton of sports and just being visibly fit, people would comment Mm -hmm. on it. So then you derive like, Oh, thank you. You know, like Mm -hmm. complimented. And then I got into like bodybuilding for a little bit. Mm -hmm. I got into that culture. So all of my, if you looked at my wedding party, like every guy is huge. Right. So I got into, into that realm. And I think it'd be an interesting one to study because it's such a messed up space because you're never happy. So you're shooting for this ideal and the way that it's typically done is that you'll bulk right? So you put on a bunch of weight. And then what you do is you peel it off, right? Bulk and cut. So when you're bulking, you're happy with your size, but you're unhappy with your fat proportions. So you Mm. feel overweight, you feel like you can feel it on your body, and it doesn't feel good. And then when you cut, you basically have about a month window where you're that optimal mm. body but it's not you can't do it right you can't maintain it because you're right you're basically starving or you're under your caloric requirement so then you start right. getting skinny so then you're lean but you're not big enough so you're always right. like 11 months of 12 you're either big but not lean enough or you're lean but not big enough and then right, it's right. this constant battle of not being there right Besides yeah exactly three weeks or <laughs> Right, right. That's so interesting. I've never heard um, it, the training process explained that way. And that makes so much sense. But yeah, I mean, that like bodybuilding is extreme body control. Yeah. And, you know, so, so, so yeah, that, that, that can have, that can really mess up your relationship, I think, with the way that you think about yourself and how much control you think you have over changing your body. And, and, and I think one of the things too, that I'm quite critical of is our, in kinesiology in general, um, we are around people who are fit and who really buy into these sociocultural ideals. And so, and ironically enough, we're the ones that are promoting physical activity, exercise, sport to the broader population that really does not fit the way that we, you know, the way that we are in terms of, of, of activity or, um, or, or fitness or any of those things. So we are the ones that are promoting these things, but we don't represent the people we're promoting it to. So and I, so I, we have, yeah. <laughs> I remember, I don't know if I was, if I said it to you or to Kathy Saviston, but I think I pulled Kathy over because it was her whole lab. And that year, it just so happened that the lab was a bunch of petite women who were right. super physically active and fit and you know were the, one percent unachievable fitness level and it was all on body image and and they were interviewing people about their issues with body image and i i was watching the seminar and i went i gave her a tap and i'm like you realize that this is a whole seminar of people of unachievable bodies asking people why how they feel about not having one yeah 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 100 percent yeah 
Yeah. And, and that's actually something that I know I've always sort of confronted every time I've studied this type of work. And mm-hmm. now I've really gotten into the uh, fat activism uh, sphere of academia, which is fascinating. So it basically looks at fatness from a social justice perspective. That's and like a bo- body positivity movement. Yeah, yeah. But it's more than it's more than body positivity. It's mostly just like, you know, I mean, obviously, our internalizations and our ideals around what body should look like, they're just socially constructed. And Mm. uh, unfortunately, our social our social constructions of of what makes a good body ends up marginalizing a really large proportion of, of, of the population. And so, you know, so anyway, all this work to say is that, you know, oftentimes you have to recognize what is called thin privilege. And it's this idea that like me walking through the world as a thin woman, I've always been small, always been petite. And me walking through the world, I'm not going to experience the same thing as um, someone who is higher weight might. And I'm not going to going to have the same relationship with the public in the world uh, yeah. that someone in, in a more marginalized body might. And it's the same privilege that is linked with any other marginalized social identity, whether that be, you know, um, color of someone's skin or, um, or anything, any other really marginalized identity. So, so yeah. And, and it's interesting. It's the same sort of thing as when you have white folks who are studying racial issues. So I think like the number one thing is that we have to recognize that and put it up at the forefront and just say, yeah, like I will never be able to understand those experiences because I Mm -hmm. haven't lived them. And so that to say doesn't mean that I've never experienced body image issues or, or anything like that. Um, But it's certainly not in the same way or certainly not in a way where my body is marginalized uh, in society. So yeah, your, your point, uh, your point stands. And I even think of that now too, from a supervisory perspective of, okay, like what sort of lab environment am I creating where, you know, am I building just a lab of thin white women? And that's something that I think about all the time. Like, how can I make my, and the environment that I set forth for students to be interested who are in different bodies or different um, social identities that are outwardly expressed and those sort of things. So mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it's, it's yeah. really interesting walking around the uh, sports psych conferences, right? So I'm, a, I'm six foot one. And when I go to a sports psych conference, I'm short. <laughs> right, right. right? Yeah. I'm a short yeah. guy at those conferences yeah. because most people are basketball players or volleyball players or athletes. You know, ath- so yeah, it's, why, yeah. It's, it's an interesting, yeah, you go to many labs and they, they could be confused as a elite sport locker room right, right? if, if right, you took away right. the con- contextual right. information if you just said right. here's four bodies what do they do they would probably say oh they're varsity athletes right? yeah. So, yeah 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 and i mean that's the thing like right the identity politics actually do have a really big impact in the way that we study uh, in the topics that we study in the ways that we study them like sports psychology for the most part and I'm not and certainly this is going to be a, a broad blanket statement but for the most part <laughs> treat sport treat sport as something that is inherently good and something that needs to be promoted and looks at all the positive outcomes that can result from sport but that's not everyone's experience and so and I would argue that most people's experience isn't that and so that's the way that I'm sort of studying sport or the way that I think about sport is looking at okay who doesn't engage from the beginning who disengages who has bad experiences with it why how can we help 
what can we do societally to reduce those negative experiences and how can we make it more inclusive for you know a large proportion of the population not just the people that you know are represented in our sports psychology um population yeah (laughs) uh, so again coming back to the masters athletes we get criticized on that because we are pushing that we think it's good now part of what our movement is, is we're trying to make it more inclusive because we think right. there's benefits. Right. Unfortunately, only a small percent of the population gets to reap those benefits. So our right. goal is to, to make it so somehow, you, you know, policy wise, we can change it so more people can benefit from sport. Right. It doesn't necessarily have to be the competitive sport. But yeah, we get criticized saying like, you are way too positive about this sport movement. And the reality is it's only super rich old tend to be white guys who play master sport right 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 yeah yeah and that's the really interesting thing too with representation too and obviously there's been lots of discussions around black lives matter movement about you know can we as in our really privileged positions can we really be the ones that can actually do inclusivity work and lots of scholars would be pretty critical of that is that you need people with a lived experience to be representing the experiences um, of, of the people that they're trying to to target. And so in the, like the fat activism movement, there's, there's a saying, oh, no, and now I'm blanking on it. But basically, like, there's no way to do this work without us. Like, you need to represent us to be able to actually have meaningful impact and represent the experiences. And so, yeah, and so it's, it, it really always like challenges me. And I don't know about you, like, what sort of how you feel when you're when, when you're challenged around the, that type of work, but it really makes me think like, okay, why am I doing this, and how can I do it in a way that's more mm-hmm. representative of the people that I'm trying to yeah well, to advocate I, for. It, bring, <laughs> it brings me back to my exercise psych class at McGill, where there was myself and Jeff, my first guest, and we were getting all the pushback on. And I just felt like it was an I hate sport class, but mm. but now like now that I'm out of it and have thought about it more it's some of these important issues but coming at it I was fresh into my master's I didn't really think too much about you know all these other areas and I'm just like what is look why is everyone attacking (laughs) sports sports so great it was the best thing in my life right and then people are saying like well you know it's one of the only uh one of the only activities that you will do where people visually can see if you're bad or good right right yeah. And then I, yeah. I would fight back and I said, well, I made it, I'd make it up. And I'd say in elementary school, I had to play the flute and everyone could hear how bad I was. <laughs> and then they're like, now you're just being condescending and like argumentative for no reason. I said, and I, I feared playing the flute every day because because the, there's that performative aspect. I'm like, you're being a dick. <laughs> so, yeah. but that's the thing I mean you know and even uh, like listening to to your um your your other guests too and how we talked about those are individuals that had for the most part fairly positive experiences with sport and so or at least there was some identity tied into sport and so and and maybe that's yeah that's too broad of a statement and, and and it doesn't capture everyone's experience but I think you know like when I think of my experiences in sport they were horrible and it like it made me feel so bad about myself and um yeah, and they weren't like environments in which I, I felt that I thrived at all. And I've literally had to work for years and years on reconstructing my relationship with activity in a way that it's healthy and that it's mm-hmm. not that it's not evaluative and performance based. And yeah. 
And that took a lot of unlearning of what I was taught um, that sport should be. So yeah, it took a while for me to be able to be reflective enough to, to, to figure this one out because I, (laughs) I was always good at sports. So whatever sport we try, I'd be one of the better people at it. So then, but but in gym class, like I didn't care if someone was bad. I was like, Oh, you're bad. Whatever. I'll pass you the ball. Just no big deal. We're playing a game here. Right. I'm like, why do they even care? Like, why would they not, you know, some people wouldn't participate. Right. I'm like, right. Right. Wouldn't participate in gym class. Why? Like that's so dumb. Right. It doesn't matter if you're bad, but then I thought about it and I said, okay, but what if someone asked, so myself, I'll go on a tangent here. My first episode was with Jeff and uh, Kels goes, oh, Jeff has such a nice voice. (laughs) (laughs) And me. (laughs) (laughs) So I thought about it and I go, all right, well, what if I were tasked with singing in front of a group, right? Mm -hmm. I would be mortified, like mortified Mm -hmm. because I'm so bad at it. And right. I, okay, that like just in finally connecting another activity that was public that I would care about, right. and I would just right. be mortified for everyone to see how bad I am. Right. I don't even right. know if I'd be able to voice a word if it was serious. Like if I had to take it serious and actually try. So then I guess that's where you get the kids who would goof off in class as to not, you know, try the activity. Right. 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 Yeah. Like like if you and that's you know there's perfectionism work in that area too where if um you know or for a procrastination point of view as well where if you don't try hard enough then you'll never have your best effort negatively evaluated yeah, and so it's just like yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know it's such a self-protective thing yeah. um and you know like i mean i would argue that it's human nature that we fundamentally want to be good at things yeah. um you know that's how we're socially evaluated and that's how we're socially rewarded and you know if we think about our social hierarchies and, and, and those sort of things. So, um, so yeah, it's hard for us as humans to do things that we are not good at. And in a physical education environment, uh, you know, I, I know you just said that you didn't care. You weren't nice. You were still nice to the kids that weren't good, but um, I can tell you that was not my experience as, <laughs> as a kid who wasn't good, you know, like I would say that the P classes were like the, the environments where I was most, I felt most, like bullied essentially in in throughout school so then it forms this like identity around oh i like you know and and it, and it keeps you from trying things and yeah. so so yeah and i think like a lot of the 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 girls and the women that i interview and talk to have those similar experiences that they can recall um and then you know imagine also from the other side of things imagine being a larger bodied kid or someone with a differing ability and the kind of additional scrutiny you would have in those sort of environments and no wonder you would never want to do them again like I wouldn't blame anyone so yeah it's interesting to 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 think about and to have these uh these reflexive conversations (laughs) yeah yeah body representation and then uh I guess I was going to ask you sort of beyond sport just to maybe chat about how body image can impact one's sense of self so how how it can be part of who you are as a human being so being someone who played sports my whole life and being someone Mm -hmm. who's been more fit let's say my whole life it is part of who i am Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so to the extent of it when covid happened Mm -hmm. 
we had one day off, right? So we went and saw a doctor. Kels was pregnant at the time. And then we said, should we be teaching with this happening? And they said, absolutely not. Get out of the classroom now. We don't know what the right. effect is, right? So then we closed down. And then the next day, I thought, oh, my God, the gyms are going to close. I need, <laughs> I need a home gym. So I bought, right. all, like, I said, Kels, I need this, right? Like, I don't know what I'll do if I can't have a, if I can't work out. And like, it was terrifying to me to think right. that if I don't have a home gym and, and the gym's closed, then I, like I lose who I am. Right. So. Right. Right. That's interesting. Yeah, no, I, I think it makes a lot of sense. And it's making me think of this new area of research that I'm really going into now. And it's really not a new area of research. It's just a, a different way of thinking about the same thing that I've studied for for as long as I've studied uh, these research topics, but yeah. it's this idea of like a attuned movement or um, what I'm calling compassionate movement. And it's essentially like engaging with bodily movement in a way that is intuitive and it's listening to your body and um, mm -hmm. listening to your body signals rather than looking at different markers or standards of what you should be doing. And so, you know, if we think about it, even from like a motivation point of view too, for you, you know, as you mentioned, it was, you know, um, my day-to-day -day routine around exercise would be disrupted and yeah. without even thinking of, okay, how is this going to make me feel? It immediately is, well, I need to make sure that context is put back in place. So it doesn't, yeah. you know, shift or have a dramatic effect in, in the behavior that is such an integral part of my day. And mm -hmm. so, you know, th that's one thing when we talk about making uh, exercise routine or habitual, you know, I might sort of challenge against that and just wonder if, okay, well, what if we just listen to our bodies and listen to what our bodies are asking of us? You know, I mean, like, like for example, I got a standing desk because I get super restless if I'm sitting all day. So, yeah. and it's not necessarily like an exercise um, integrated thing that I'm, that I'm engaging in, but rather it's just a responding to how my body feels. And so it's that same sort of thing where if we can just listen, uh, be mindful of how our bodies are feeling and respond acutely rather than, than, you know, more broadly considering exercise is something that we have to do, mm -hmm. then it can really shift that relationship but it's a completely radical way of thinking about it from I know the way I was trained and you know the, like the more predominant rhetoric in our in our field so yeah but I think too it's you know if you think about like how does exercise make you feel and how why do you do it what are your reasons for doing it a lot of people do it because it makes them feel better it reduces their stress it alleviates anxiety it helps them feel capable. It shows them the ways in which their bodies can move. It helps mm -hmm. them um, interact with friends. Like those are all wonderful reasons or motivations to be engaged. And so I don't think I'm answering your question, but I think it's, it's, yeah, you're, you're touching on this idea of like identity and, mm -hmm. and the exerciser identity in which there's been quite a bit of work. But, but my argument is just that I think when we think about exercise as something that is, is integrally tied to who we are we lose our the way that we respond to it in a more intuitive or tuned way yeah um so so what i wonder is and i think there's pros and cons obviously so as i said there's troubled uh, experience and even i'll give a story of my brother after too i don't know how much uh how much theory or how much is just my own theorizing about this is that i think that if you want to have behavior change let's say you want to get in better shape the best thing you can do is not set a goal to have i don't know lose 10 pounds or to do whatever you should set an identity-based goal 
So recently I said, I'm going to try to become a cyclist, right? Mm -hmm. Like a high performing cyclist. So instead of saying, I'm going to lose weight or I'm going to do something like that, I say, and then like through that lens, I become that person. And what mm-hmm. would it, so then when I ask myself daily questions, what would a cyclist do like a hot, an elite one do at this time, probably not have this to eat, would probably bike, you know, get my 20 keg, you know, I would do, I started, you know, working on increasing my lactic threshold. That's like my new experiment. I always do mm. physical experiments on myself, but so now I'm, tra- I'm trying <laughs> to, I'm trying to <laughs> see how close I can get to an elite cyclist physique. So that's my new, but I find by setting an identity-based goal and becoming that identity and, and, and making that body part of your identity, then you're going to be less likely to give up because you have to essentially reject who you are and who you're trying to be to not do that. So that's my mm, habit. Interesting. Habit yeah. Hacking, okay. Um, okay. Yeah. Philosophy. Yeah. And I mean, even from like a goal achievement point of view, certainly makes sense. Like if it is, you know, congruent with your, with who you want to be and with your future self and all of that. But I guess I would just, you know, my question to you would be, Hmm. what is the, what is your motivation for wanting to achieve that identity? You know, and so the why behind it, like why, why do you want to be an elite cyclist as an, Uh, as an identity? Why do you want to embody that identity? So I'll give you the reality. One, I just want to maintain a physique. COVID switched things up. I used to do alternative fashions. So now I play hockey again, but like I wasn't getting any physical activity in cardio. And usually my cardio, I get through sport. So I had none. And then I was starting to put on weight pretty rapidly because I don't like to diet. I just like to out-exercise my diet, which doesn't work for most people, but I've managed to do that. So then I bought a spin bike. And I didn't like the spin bike. So instead of setting a goal of a weight thing or a goal of like a number of kilometers or something, I said, okay, I have a spin bike. How can I habit hack this activity to become the best at it? So then I said, I'm going to try and become an elite cyclist, right? Okay. Okay. (laughs) What their wattage was, what their wattage per uh, weight is. And now, now I have these goals and these, and then these behaviors that I've learned. So how did elite cyclists do it in the past? So I'm trying to mimic that path. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. And I mean, so, so this is super interesting to me and I think it is kind of, it's just making me think of how that approach, which I think how a lot of people relate to exercise Mm -hmm. as this thing that just has inherent value in itself. And also something that it's like virtue signaling, like it's a virtuous behavior that we societally, if you present with that identity, you get better treatment, you're more, you're held to higher standard. And so obviously we have a human motivation to want to seek that but from that like intuitive movement perspective it does it you know I just wonder like does it change the relationship you have with it if your goal is so external or if your goal is you know to you know (laughs) for sure so I mean I do have some so if we're talking uh, self-determination theory where there's a variety of external to internal motives I would say I have the whole onslaught of it, but my motivation that has pushed me to exercise has been external and it has like in all honesty been not prime, like a good portion of vanity driven external 
you know, weight, body, image type, maintaining this physique that I worked hard for, that I'm proud of, and I don't want to lose. So it's not on the term of a motivational standpoint, a good place to be. But where I think that the, okay, and not that it's good psychologically, (laughs) it's good from a commitment perspective is I tied it to an identity. So looking a certain way was who I was. So if I don't exercise, I will lose who I am. Mm-hmm. So, so, and that's the way that I am. That's the way that my brother is. And I would mm-hmm. say in 12 years, I could count on one hand how many times I've gone more than two days without working out. Like, Interesting. Yeah. So, so it's effective at doing a behavior that I know is good for me. Right. But I just tied it to who I am. Right. And it does have negative right. aspects. So, so my, I said, I'm going to bring it back to my brother. So he's even worse than me. In the sense that like, he's so addicted to working out, uh, mm-hmm. but also for external reasons, um, mm-hmm. to the point where when I got married, he was my best man. And we're getting ready, you know, to, for me to get married. <laughs> my, brother's, <laughs> my brother's nowhere to be found, right? We have no idea where he is. All the groomsmen are in the room. We're waiting for my brother. Like, okay, we're getting dressed. We're getting ready. He's nowhere. No one knows where he is. He's in the gym doing like right. a tricep workout wow yeah yeah uh, kaylin like what are you doing you're wearing a suit first of all i can't even see your tricep pump right, right. <laughs> so, right. but right. just you couldn't had to do it right yeah. yeah 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 and and the thing is i mean these are things that are socially rewarded and reinforced you know i mean these are extremely valued and they're also the way that our culture and society um, thinks that like, the purpose of exercise should be. So of course we're all exercising for vanity and external reasons because that's the messaging we're getting. No one is telling us that we should exercise because of the inherent joy of movement, Yeah. but why not? You know, like yeah. <laughs> I think my biggest question in my biggest motivation in this area of work in general is that question that you brought up before around doing this thing that's good for me and I'm going to do it. I'm going to get there at no matter what the psychological cost that is <laughs> like for me, my, my, that's something that's the most interesting and is, is the act of engaging in exercises, all the wonderful benefits of physical activity, are they overcome by the psychological consequences that we take to attain that commitment or that level of like super rigorous and rigid commitment? Oh yeah. That would be my question. I don't know. So as long as I'm capable of exercise, so that's where it came down to, I need a home gym. And I, like I said, look, it's going to cost a lot of money, but it's going to be the difference between you living with someone who you want to live with or someone who's an absolute awful human being because guilt, the, the negative, Right. Emotions right. associated with missing a workout. Right. Especially missing one like two days in a row, three days right. in a row, four days in a row. I don't like I'm telling you right now, I don't know how I would handle right. being forced to not work out for a week. Right. So this is so interesting. I really feel like we're getting somewhere here. Because, <laughs> um, this is so fascinating from like an eating disorder perspective. If you were to be communicating these same ideas with regards to food, then from a psychological perspective, you know, it might be recommended that you engage in, as you said, one of these like sort of personal experiments where you like an exposure therapy, where you see what would happen when you don't exercise for four or five days and see what happens to that fear, that anxiety. And that's exactly what's done in eating disorder treatment. 
And it's so interesting how in when it comes to exercise, I think we normalize it. And, you know, if you were to be saying that to most people in the general population, you would be very, very much validated. Like, oh, I wish I could be, I wish I could feel in a way where, yeah, exactly. Like, it's such a good thing. Good for you. So it's just so interesting when you think about how much we normalize, you know, compulsive exercise, for example. So... Yeah. If, so if, so we're, if we flip this and I instead and I just replaced exercise with like I can't eat that, right? I would right. I'd be classified as probably having a disorder. Right. But because yeah. I'm not skinny, instead I'm muscular, it's it's not just like okay, it's it's good. Right. 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 Yeah, and like the, the whole yeah, and the whole like identity or self worth contingency, you know, where the self worth is so tied up in in a a certain aspect of what you can do, then, then that, that's really interesting too. But I think, yeah, I mean, really it all comes down to the fact that in our society, we value these things, we normalize them and they're not issues. And so because I study the, the, you know, when they do become issues, then I'm really interested in, I guess, changing that, that narrative, but but it's, uh, yeah, it's hard. When I was at McGill, I had access to DEXA scanner. So because of mm. the physiology master students, they mm-hmm. would like to scan myself. So I started building programs to see how effective they would be. And one time, so I said, I like to do experiments on myself. So I wanted to know how lean I could get mm-hmm. without losing muscle mass. And then okay. I built this, I started doing gymnastics training, which was really fun to learn and do. Did that, but I was working out twice a day. So I do an hour and a half of lifting, an hour and a half of cardio. So three hours a day. I was doing intermittent fasting, uh, low carb, like everything I, I could think of and piling it on top of each other. And I did lose, like I got down. I got to about 8% body fat before I started losing weight. And then I got to 5% body fat. Um, and then I stopped because it's actually dangerous to go below. But I remember doing it. And like, I was kind of taking notes on how I was feeling. And Mm. so I looked the best I've ever looked. I was very proud of the way I looked, but like life sucked. I I couldn't Mm -hmm. sleep. I had a really hard time sleeping. It was not depressed, but similar symptoms to depression. Mm -hmm. Like Mm -hmm. you lose any interest in doing things that you used Mm -hmm. to find interesting. And then your social life sucks, right? So Hey, let's all go out for a meal. Well, I can't go to the meal because I don't know what's like the exact proportions of that meal and, right. and the calories and what's that, what's that going to mean? Right. And what am I going to do? Drink water and have a salad and ask them to hold the dressing and give me all the, right. So it was, an, right. It, that one was an interesting experiment. I, uh, yeah. <laughs> I went hard on, but it was, uh, yeah. So it like, it sort of sucks the joy out of life. <laughs> yeah. It was a horrible life. So when you see yeah. those people on the magazine, like who, we post as like the picture of fitness or men's health, whatever. At that time, I would say, I would go as far as saying as I looked like those people, mm-hmm. right? It was the worst psychological, social right. feeling that I've ever had, right? And, right? and when you see the guys in bodybuilding, men and women who step on the stage, they're, uh, stage, stage, they're so unhealthy, but they look what we think in a certain way is of, as health, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and that's the other thing too, where I think there's just like this immediate link that we make between appearance and health. And yeah. 
you know, and that that's so problematic in so many ways, but it's true. It's the way that our field and our society really does construct health, you know, and even in doing some some readings in the, the sociocultural field of, of healthism and the fact that we think of health as this moral imperative and <laughs> that, you know, being healthy is uh, so virtuous and that we have, if we can be healthy, why wouldn't we? And so... Yeah, it's it's really I find this sort of stuff fascinating um, to to think about, and I mean, there's so many like really interesting um, sociology perspectives on this. I'm just starting to get into now, but it completely flips the way that we think about the stuff and that we the way we've been trained, and it and it really flips it upside down. But yeah, you you really I think bringing up a good point is that we cannot be equating health with appearance in any way. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, I think you'll like uh, my last one. So the last podcast I did before you uh, was social constructions of the body. So. Oh, amazing. Okay, cool. Yeah, so I had Dr. Brayton, um, sports sociologist in my department. Awesome. Cool. Okay. So smart. Yeah. It was, yeah, yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm so Oh, now, now I'm worried about following up. Maybe some <laughs> other people in between us. <laughs> You're great. I, I'm, I'm always the consistent meathead in each, uh, in each episode. So don't worry. <laughs> the floor is low. Yeah, you talked about that in a couple in your other ones too, right? About that your goal is really just to set the bar low always, and yeah. then uh, <laughs> yeah. 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 If the bar is low, it's easy to impress, right? You'd never want to come in high and disappoint. <laughs> so how um, t- tell me? I'm so curious. How has your podcasting experience been in the past few weeks? Like you just started this a few weeks ago, right? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. Four. Okay. So like, what are your lessons learned? How have you, how have you felt things have gone? And, and is this how you envisioned it going? Um, I've really enjoyed it. I do get scared sometimes of stepping on a landmine because I'm pretty open about mm. things. You know, if ever I do, and there's a listener that's mad at something I said, hey, send me an email and I'll have you on and you can teach me something. I just want to learn. (laughs) And learning through mistakes is how you do it. So that's one fear I do have. But so far, it's been really good and really positive in terms of the feedback. And what I was saying was part of why I did this is there's a couple of reasons. I want to, one, show there's human beings behind the academics. Two, demystify academia. Mm-hmm. And then three, just talk about stuff I find interesting. So it's been mm-hmm. so fun for mm-hmm. me, especially with COVID. I'm a very social guy. So just right. this has given me a, like, when have we had a two hour ch- chat, right? Right, right, right. Exactly. Yeah. So, so I get to reach out and talk about things that interest me. I get to yeah. learn new things and I get to chat with people I enjoy chatting with. Right, right, right. I know. And, 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 and the thing too, with, I mean, conferences now and not really knowing what that whole sphere is going to look like over the next few years, or maybe indefinitely, yeah. you know, um, just thinking about when's the next conference, or we're actually going to be able to catch up with people and, and socialize and do all the really important socializing that we do from yeah, yeah. a non-academic perspective. And yeah. yeah, so this is such a good, a good way of doing that. So yeah, I'm really glad that you, uh, that you've done this. Oh, thanks. Thanks. So I guess one of the things I like to do on this podcast is get you to suggest, you know, someone who you think is doing good work right now in research. So it doesn't have to be in the field of body image. It could be just, you know, sport, exercise, psychology, 
motor learning, whatever it is. Is there anyone you think is doing good work right now that, and this is part me thinking, who can I interview next? <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay. Yeah. Let me think. Let me think. Maybe I'll, I'll uh, maybe I'll, I'll, I'll look at my Twitter to see who, who's recently been inspiring me. Um, so I would say, honestly, the, the two people that come to mind that have in the last year and a bit completely changed the way that I think about things and um, <laughs> made me really cons- reconsider my work are uh, doctors Rachel Calgaro and Dr. Uh, Angela Meadows. And they are both at Western. Yeah. Um, and uh, they, you know, I know, I know you said it doesn't have to be someone from my area, but mm-hmm inevitably it, yeah. it, it is. Yeah. And, you know, they've really introduced me to work from a like fat activism and advocacy perspective. Yeah. And it has just really opened my eyes to challenging a lot of the ways that I've thought about things, a lot of the, um, the assumptions that I hold and the ways that I think about exercise and movement in the body. And just the conversations I've had with them, even just in this past year have been just so informative. So those would be, I, I think, two to check out i'm trying to think of if there's anyone else that i can i'll leave it at that for now (laughs) perfect perfect and then uh one other thing i like to ask people doesn't even have to be academic it could be a thoughtless like just purely experiential task but if you have a book that you've read that you think that given perhaps a little bit more free time now what would you recommend people read and it doesn't have to be academic Hmm. Okay. See, I, this is one thing actually that I was, I'm really trying to work on. And I don't know if you have this issue, but is all of my reading, my recreational reading tends to be on topics that are linked to my research and I just, or like, um, like psychological topics. And so I find myself never really reading fiction. I'm always drawn to nonfiction and it's always in my realm of interest in when it comes to a topic. And, you know, you brought this up in your, in your other podcasts too, around sometimes as academics, we become so embedded in our way of thinking about in our identity as academics. And that is me to a T like I cannot you know, uh, veer from that. But I'm trying to think of, okay, the book that probably changed my way of thinking the most is a book that's called, it, it's basically a self-help book, but, um, but I think it's really valuable. Um, it's called When Perfect Isn't Good Enough. Yeah. Um, have you heard of it? No, but it sounds perfect for an academic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it's basically just like dismantling the idea of perfectionism and it completely changed the way that like my relationship with my work, the way that um, that I feel about my work and, and the, the perfectionistic tendencies that we that we have as academics. So uh, I know you said to pick a non-academic book, but I'm sorry. I <laughs> Oh no, yeah, it could be or could not be academic. I think the last one my guest asked me about a book and mine was the same. Same thing. It was like a behavioral right. psychology book. Okay, so it's okay. not sports so, psych, but it was right. behavioral psych. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And that's the thing. You know, obviously, we study, especially from a psychology perspective, we're often a little bit self-indulgent, and we yeah. study things that we are inherently interested in. And so, and I think to some degree, you have to. Sometimes the work is a bit of a grind, and there's a having that inherent interest and curiosity in the topic is going to keep you going. So. I think it's unavoidable to some degree. <laughs> yeah, yeah for, sure. for sure. 
So do you think at this point, when it comes to body image, when it comes to some of the research that you're interested in, have we covered mostly everything? Or is there anything that you want to talk about before we end this podcast, maybe as it relates to your research, the topic, or even grad school or academia? Part of this is also talking a little bit about academia. Right, right. Um, I mean, there's so much more we could we could talk about, obviously, in the topic. I think one thing that really didn't come through that, that maybe I... I I should mention and, and um, really should have in some of our discussions is, you know, I think a lot of there's a misconception uh, that body image is basically like a woman's issue or it's very gendered. And so, you know, you shared some experiences that you've had. And, you know, I think considering the gender bit is really important. I, I did a little bit of work with uh, Dr. Stu Murray. He's a clinical psychologist in, at the time he was in the University of California in San Francisco, and he's an eating disorder clinician. And he specializes in the male presentation of, of eating disorders, which is muscular orientation, essentially. And it was just fascinating to consider that, again, how normative that tends to be in male athletes, in you know, the the exercise science slash kinesiology world. And, you know, one of the really interesting bits about it is that oftentimes these disordered behaviors or cognitions, particularly in males go unnoticed or overlooked, or they're less sort of socially recognized. And Mm -hmm. so there's some great work being done by, you know, Stu and his colleagues around reducing some of that stigma around men or, you know, non-binary folks or, you know, sort of thinking about um, gender more long continuum, how gendered these experiences tend to be and how our current study of the body and of body image really is very gendered. And, and I think we can often miss the mark on recognizing and, and helping men particularly with body image uh, concerns or, or um, relationships with exercise. So I think that's something that didn't come through as well as, as it could have. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I, I fully agree with it. And it came down to the perspective of I know even myself, my some a lot of my friends were, you know, if you think of a clinical problem, it, it, it has to render, you know, either impacting yourself or others negatively, right? And I know a ton of guys who's working out has ended a relationship has because they, you know, put off spending time with them because they had, they were working, they only had three hours off and then two hours were the gym and one went to someone (laughs) to their significant other. Right. And if that was any other behavior, not necessarily male typical behavior, it would be classified as a disorder, right. Or problematic, Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. we haven't really tackled you know, the male side of it. And it's just normalized. So no, that's good. It's a good thing. They're in shape. Right. (laughs) So, and actually more people should try and do that too. Right. So it's a one, the one where I think there's probably a hidden disorder that we're not only not recognizing, but we're also almost encouraging other to to have it. Right. Mm -hmm. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, exactly. Exactly. And especially with, you know, like gender role socialization, we, Mm -hmm. that really feeds into it too, where we societally don't encourage men to talk about things that they're just uncomfortable with and, um, and, and negative emotions and those sort of things. So yeah, yeah, that would be an important point. And, you know, honestly, my take home is that I really think we just need to decouple the body from exercise and fitness goals. And we need to think of them inclusively, like how can we promote feeling good about our bodies, but also promote doing activities that we feel good about and that 
uh, we enjoy and that bring us pleasure rather than engaging in activities um, to change our body. So that would be my, if, if, mm. I, if I do anything in my career, that would be something that I'd like to, to work on, yeah. so, on dismantling. <laughs> so I'm going to ask you maybe one question and we'll see, and we can always delete this if you want. Later. <laughs> okay, good lead then. <laughs> I'm going to ask you to toe the line here. So one thing I've been wrestling with, knowing that there's issues with this decoupling of the body and physical activity and sort of taking away that valuation, how, how would you toe that line as a kinesiologist when trying to be more accepting of, you know, bigger bodies, alternative views of it, knowing that certain bodies, let's say a BMI above 30 is associated with adverse health. How can and I mean, I don't know the answer. <laughs> I, mean, I imagine right, right. if you know the perfect answer, you're probably going to be a millionaire someday. But how do we, <laughs> how do we handle that, right? With right. with trying to not shame and not, you know, put people down and, and create psychological issues, while also maintaining the fact that there are some physiological issues that amount from being too big. So yes, I think there's a lot of different ways to answer this question. Um, But I really I think that there is the literature that links weight, a higher weight to mortality and morbidity actually isn't nearly as clear as we have come to summarize it as. So yeah, so there is a curvilinear relationship between weight and mortality. There is and and, Can you explain what that means curvilinear? So just for yeah, so so actually high like individuals in larger weight categories actually live longer. So from a mortality perspective, than if you look at like the largest scale longitudinal cohort studies that have been done, the relationship is not quite as clear. It's definitely not linear in the way that we think of it, where higher weight equals shorter lifespan worsened health and so that you know right away that's an assumption that we have the other component is that we and this is what weight stigma scholars would argue and there's certainly so much building evidence now is that it's not actually if you control for weight and assess things like how stigmatized individuals are or how excluded they are because of their weight, those are the psychological experiences that actually link to worsened health. And so in a lot of the work looking at this, yeah, it's really like, um, and fat activists will say this, is it's not my weight that's killing me, it's the stigma that I have to be exposed to. And so, you know, when I was talking about that work that I've done around, um, or that I'm interested in, in looking at how like body-based rejection, social rejection is linked Mm -hmm. with worsened health, that's really the link, is we know that when people feel stigmatized about their bodies, they, we see the psychophysiological response, which then is linked to the worsened outcomes, regardless of the weight. And not to mention all of the literature looking at if you look at fitness, mm-hmm. controlling for weight, if you look at fitness, that is the best indicator of health outcomes, not weight. So regardless of weight, if you can promote activity and engage in movement and be active in ways that you enjoy in ways that empower you that is this you know the the best predictor of of health outcomes and 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 mortality and those sort of things so really like if you 
take weight out of the picture, we can still continue doing what we're doing in promoting activity and yeah. promoting movement and promoting these things that we know are linked to, to, to better health outcomes. But that has to be at the, de- at the point where we decouple weight from the equation because weight doesn't matter and weight doesn't equal health. And so, so that would be my, my argument. And that's something that I would be very, that I could, again, like talk a lot more about, but yeah. I think there's, you know, this, this area of research that's really showing this from from many different perspectives, the psychological, sociological components, and a lot of the public health weight stigma research is, is starting to seep into some of the more mainstream public health messaging around um, around weight immediately being a bad thing that we need to eradicate and physical activity we know is not the effective way to do that anyway. So yeah. <laughs> That's very cool. So we've come full circle and your psychophysiological response is now becoming a prominent element in maybe your future research. That's right. That's right. We have very to come cool. full circle. Yeah, I, so yeah. I just learned I just learned something very new. So I gotta I gotta look into this more and do some more research. <laughs> awesome. So yeah. So it's really the physical activity is what matters. And that's the thing I, I think is sometimes I have to be careful in when I when I'm talking about these things because it can come off as hating on, on activity and <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. hating on movement. Well, and, because, um, because weight and physical activity are so coupled, they're almost seen as the same thing. Exactly. It's societally, they certainly are. And, and we don't do a very good job in research of decoupling yeah. it. So, so um, when you say, no, it, it, weight doesn't matter, that's taken by many as physical activity doesn't matter. Right, right, yeah. exactly, exactly. So it's not that I think that physical activity is, 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 is this terrible thing. Um, yeah. I think it's a wonderful and has so many wonderful benefits. It's just the way, I'm critical of the ways that we promote it and um, the way that we link it to the body. When really, like if, we're act, if you're active in an embodied sense, you can feel so connected to, to, to your body and so in tune with yourself and uh, what your body's able to do. Like that's such a beautiful feeling that I think we often take away when we have these very external outcome-based goals around, you know, yeah. changing what, what our body looks like. So Yeah. And the listeners, I'm not entirely a vanity-based person and I find... <laughs> To, uh, to improve my adherence and to improve my experience with physical activity, I always do try and find these intrinsic things. So when I mm-hmm. spoke about the gymnastics training, it was so cool to learn how you could manipulate your, your balance and body in certain ways. And now mm-hmm. with the biking, I, I don't know, I, I love just trying to see how bad I can make my legs feel <laughs> as much as that's over. <laughs> like just how much burn can I push through? Right. So right. I do first time I've coupled that with a positive interpretation, but yeah. So I do look for these actual components of the game and that's why I love sport more than physical activity because. Yeah. I, I, and couple, I can totally see that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I do think in sport, you can capture the embodied benefits of of movement a lot better than in a structured session at the gym. Absolutely. Yes. Mm -hmm. Sport is so many, you know, like the social aspect, the cooperation, the like, that's also, you you can't get that in a structured exercise sense. So yeah. And even just the the way you pursue the same activity. So imagine I say sprint 100 meters, right? And then someone goes, no, but then I throw a ball. Right, right. Say, get right. the ball. And what do they yeah. do? Sprint a hundred meters, right? right, so, right but right, one yeah. is enjoyable and one sucks. <laughs> right. Yeah. No, absolutely. And, and, and I think too, like, I mean, there's research too on play and like having fun and activity and movement. And sometimes we just have to look at the way that 
kids. And I mean, as you know, as Katie grows up, for example, you're going to yeah. watch the, the relationship she has with movement and how yeah. it can be fun. And she isn't doing it for outcome goals. She's yeah. doing it because the process is just enjoyable. And so it's almost like we should really look to kids to see how they engage with movement to, mm. to get back to that. Cause it's fun. I mean, moving your body can be really, really fun. So yeah. yeah. Well, I cool. Think, uh, I think we're coming up on the end here. I think we're pushing two hours now. So. Wow. Okay. Uh, so any last thoughts before we go or. No, no. I just want to say thank you so much for having me on. And I really look forward to seeing what you continue to do with this and learning from your other guests. Yes. And yeah, and I enjoy how, how much you've like engaged with it. Thank you. Uh, I just appreciate it. It's fun. You know, like every time I come on, I ask, a, as I said, the meathead question, and then I actually <laughs> learn something valuable. So I right. you know, like change my frame of thought. And then as a guy who's interested in learning, I always leave and then I go and try and read more about the topic. So right. it's, it's just right. awesome. And I've really enjoyed it. So I hope other people are enjoying this. Yeah, I think it's great. Yeah, good, good for you. Um, have my full support. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you very much. <laughs> All right, cool. Oh, okay, awesome. awesome. Yeah. So that was fun. Cool.